0: Great to see you guys this morning. I tell you, it was really nice to be a walk-in this morning and see some familiar faces, and uh, you guys were really kind to welcome me and, and, uh, and make me feel at home here at Frisco Bible, so it's really great to see you. I hope you're having a great week. I hope you're excited about the week to come and, and all that's, that's in store for you today, because today's a big day. You guys know it's a big day today. It's the one day a year when we all get excited about welcoming in commercial advertising into our homes, <laughs> Right? We're so excited about these commercials. We want to see them. You know, I, I have um, there have been a couple of commercials. Normally, when we watch football at our home, we mute the commercials because we don't want that noise in our house. We just want to see the game. And even sometimes we don't watch the game because the Cowboys. Well, whatever. Um, but it, occasionally, there's a commercial or two that catches my attention. And there was one that popped up, and you know, in the spirit of. Of commercial advertising, I thought, you know what? That's actually a really good message. I, I'm gonna actually steal that for the title of my talk. AT&T's doing an ad campaign right now, where they imagine life where you would go to someone who's an expert should be an expert in something, and they're not an expert. They're not very good at it. In fact, they're just kind of okay at what they do. Maybe some of you have seen this commercial already. But I thought, man, that really speaks to what the heart of the text is. Uh, this morning, so I thought I'd pull one about a guy who goes to see a mechanic. Let's take a look. Hey. Hey. Hey, How you doing? Uh, Phil, are you guys good with brakes? We're okay. Just okay? We got a saying here. The brakes don't stop it, something will. (laughs) That's not a real saying. It is around here. I wrote it just okay is not okay. <laughs> so you can imagine they've got all of these different versions of that commercial, one with a surgeon, you know, one with a babysitter, you know, and you can imagine all these other areas where you could, you you'd think about something, you need an expert, somebody really good at something, and they're not, like a pilot or, you know, a pastor maybe, I don't know. And so, but it got me thinking, you know, what, what would a commercial series like this look like if it was about my life, where where are some of the things in my life where it's like just okay is not okay? If like if I think about my walk with Christ, like how I speak to other people, or how I handle myself when someone does me wrong, or how I would uh, respond to somebody who's like not my friend or maybe more my enemy, would I choose to love them? And you know what would somebody from the outside looking in say? Like, yeah, he's a pastor. He's he's okay. And what would I say about myself and thinking about all the decisions and all the things that happened to me in the course of the past week and in the week to come. And I really want to, I mean, I really want to honor Jesus. I really want to follow Christ. I really want to be righteous in the way that, that he has called me to be. But to be perfectly honest, most of the time I, I kind of feel like even my best efforts tend to be kind of just Okay. It's like that old Switchfoot song that says, I want to be more than fine, more than just bent on getting by. I want to be more than fine. I want to be more than just okay. And the good news is, is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is proclaiming the availability of a kingdom where righteousness isn't based on what we do. Righteousness isn't contingent on how hard we try. Or what our batting average is in arguments or whether or not we were kind. But instead of being based on our performance, he's making available a kingdom that is based on his performance. That's our big idea this morning. That's the main thing I want you to get is that the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus offering to us a righteousness that isn't man-made. It's God-given so, over the past several weeks, you guys have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and Wayne was gracious enough to lend me a spot in your sermon series, which I'm told is not very often. So, I'm actually going to try to meld what happens. I'm not going to use funny accents, though. I can't do that like he can. <laughs> um, and I, I promise you, I have way less PowerPoint slides than he does, too, because I can't keep up with that guy. He's a genius. Anyway, I am really excited about this because Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, his inauguration speech. He's wanting to proclaim this kingdom that he's coming to make available to everyone. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do. And what he's going to do as we we see the Sermon on the Mount is is he's going to contrast it with this, this righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, as you've talked about. These are religious leaders of the day, these scribes and the Pharisees, and to be perfectly honest, they were kind of acting a little bit like the mechanic in the commercial, you know? Well, if, if the brakes don't stop it, something will. <laughs> I made that up, you know? It's just like, they're really proud of these things that are essentially are just man-made. They're made-up sayings that, as, as you will see this morning, are, are, they're not even righteous. In fact, they're borderline absurd, um, ironic, if anything else. And so they were not offering anything that was close or teaching anything that was close to the availability of what Jesus was meaning to make available in the kingdom of God. They were man-made, and so it was just okay. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount as the perfect fulfillment of all the teachings about God and his kingdom is he sets the record straight. He corrects the misunderstandings of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, by holding up a better alternative. And so throughout this sermon, as you go on weeks from now, and as you've seen up until today, you've seen this contrast between a man-made righteousness and a God-given righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees really thought it was important for us, for people, to, to be like the law. They wanted and were convinced that righteousness was based on their obedience to the law. It was their measuring stick. If I do this enough times, if I don't mess up in these ways, if I work hard and get to this, you know, standard, then God will be pleased with me. I will be righteous. I will look and feel good, okay? They considered righteousness to be all about looking like the law, when in reality, when that's, this, when that's the religion that you that you espouse, then all that really does is turn you into a self-absorbed, self-focused, and self-righteous person. Because all you're concerned about is whether or not you're measuring up to some standard and you're adjusting your behavior accordingly. And that's not the kingdom that Jesus has come to make available. Because the kingdom righteousness that Jesus proclaims is based on the fulfillment of the law, not by us, but by him. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it, to complete it. And it's his fulfillment of the law, his perfect obedience to the law that makes our righteousness possible. Because in the kingdom of God, righteousness is received. It's not an achievement. Righteousness isn't about looking like the law. It's about looking like your heavenly father, the one who created you. Righteousness The kingdom righteousness that Jesus is making available produces not people who are self-righteous because they checked all the boxes. Jesus is making available a kingdom that produces obedient people, and they're poor in spirit, they're meek, they're gentle, they're merciful. They're not just attempting to be righteous because they're trying to become something that they're not. They have become the kind of people from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. They don't think about the law as a source of righteousness, as Dallas Willard says. They think of the law as the course of righteousness in which they must walk. So last week, Wayne talked to you about a list of of six things. He covered the first three last week. I'll cover the last three this week. And there are six illustrations of this contrast where Jesus is saying This is the righteousness that's available to you. You want to live a life that's more than just okay, more than just mediocre, more than just bent on getting by? Okay, then this is what it is, not what that mechanic is selling at his shop over there because, ew, gross. That's not righteousness, okay? So that's what we're going to see here. I'm going to talk about these last three in uh, Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5, Uh, Verses 33 all the way through verse 48. And what I've done to kind of make this easier for us to kind of um, organize is I've asked a question of each section, and we're going to hear what Moses, how Moses answers the question, how the scribes and the Pharisees answer the question, and then how uh, Jesus answers the question. So let's look here at verse 33 in this first section. What makes us trustworthy? What makes us trustworthy? Verse 33. Again, you've heard it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's the throne of God, or by the earth for its his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this, comes from evil. Now, most people don't really think, you know, taking an oath or, or something like that to be a, a terrible thing. In fact, most of us, when we were in third grade on the playground, made a, made a regular practice of taking oaths and making promises, you know. Some kid comes out and says, you know what? I heard that Mrs. Smith is an alien. Oh, nuh-uh, yuh-huh, nuh-uh. Are you telling the truth? I swear. Do you swear? Do you swear on your mother's grave? Do you cross your heart and you hope to die? Uh, What were some of the other ones? Um, Do you pinky promise? Um, Scout's honor? You know, like all these other things, like all these other embellishments and, you know, grandiose kind of formulas that we would invoke to kind of take our yes and make it more yes, you know? But why wouldn't we believe someone if they just said the truth? Like, why do we need them to say more than just what they said? Because even as kids, we knew that people are dishonest. We knew that people were manipulative. So we have to impress our friends with some kind of grand show of rhetoric and make ourselves more believable because apparently we're not trustworthy. And so we even, not even just ohs, even in the, the filler words that we, you know, it's like literally. True. It's literally, really, you know, totally. Like we even lift our language to make it to make it even a, a more truthful statement. And in the t- in the days of the Old Testament with Moses, it was no different. Moses said, "Keeping your vows before God is what makes you trustworthy." Okay. There are a series of Old Testament passages that are being kind of summed up by this. What the ancients were told they were trying to sum up many of the commands that were given because in those days, there were people being dishonest or people forgetting to keep their commitments, and the law was designed to encourage people to keep their word and to be trustworthy. And so if you made a vow and invoked God's name in that vow, and then all of a sudden you declined to keep it, then not not only are you not keeping your commitment, now you've invoked the name of God in not keeping your promise, which is essentially taking the name of the Lord In vain. And that is, you know, that's a big no no because that's one of the Ten Commandments. And so the Pharisees and the scribes latched on to this and they got really ticky tacky about what was, what does it really mean to keep your vow? So by the time of the first century, by the time we get to the time of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying the formula is what makes you trustworthy. Not just keeping your vow, but what you invoke to keep your vow. I cross my heart and I hope to die. That, oh, you crossed your heart and you better do that. So that's why you have the list of these things about Jerusalem and swearing by the temple and swearing by the hair on your head is because the Pharisees at this point had an elaborate system of which ones counted and which ones didn't. If you swore by the temple, it's not that big of a deal if you didn't keep your word. But if you swore by the gold on the temple, well, that's a problem. You better keep your word. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, being back on the playground in third grade where somebody says, hey, I dare you to go do, you know, such and such. "Eh, I mean, no, I triple dog dare you. (sighs) Oh, I kind of have to do it now, (laughs) you know? It's the formula really makes you have to do it. The formula invoked determined the sincerity of your oath and also the sincerity of your obligation to keep it. So the more you kept your word, the bigger the oath that you invoked in so doing, the more righteous you could make yourself look. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were so attentive to. And just like that, you've got man-made righteousness. It's something you can control It's something that you can project. It's something that you can put on display for other people to see. So what Jesus says here in verse 34 shows us the difference between man-made righteousness and God-given righteousness. He says, don't take an oath at all. Because what the Pharisees and the scribes are telling you isn't the right interpretation of the law of Moses. It's in fact, it actually doesn't make any sense. Because if you think about it, no matter how diligently you keep an oath, if you feel like you have to have an oath to get someone to believe you, doesn't that prove that your word by itself isn't enough to begin with? Secondly, if you're so untrustworthy that you need to make an oath in the first place, and then it doesn't does it really matter which formula you use to make your oath bigger or more impressive? I mean, aren't we just talking about putting lipstick on a pig at this point? We make oaths simply to impress each other to manipulate each other. We're trying to manufacture more trustworthiness to make the other person agree with us or to give us what we want, sometimes regardless of what is true. That's why Jesus says in verse 37 that anything beyond your yes or no is evil. Because the moment we swear or make an oath is essentially a man-made projection of righteousness, one that we get to make up. It's ironic. Because when you make an oath that you don't need to make, it's actually deception. That's why Jesus says, be trustworthy as I am trustworthy. The kingdom that Jesus is making available to us is one where oaths, swearing, and vows are unnecessary because the kingdom of God has come and made us into people that don't need to do that. We're trustworthy with our yes all the time and we also aren't trying to deceive or manipulate the beatitudes say blessed is the poor in spirit right can you imagine somebody who is poor in spirit needing to swear by the gold in the temple just to get you to believe him that's not righteousness why would someone who is pure in heart need to embellish their language with impressive rhetoric just to get you to go along with what they say Now, when we receive the righteousness that's available to us by God, when it's God-given in and through Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law, we can become the kind of people through whom the truth always flows. Now, I know you're wondering, I've got a court date this week. You know, I've been subpoenaed or I'm on jury duty. I'm going to have to put my hand on the Bible. Am I going to sin if I take an oath in court? No. This is not a text that is trying to say that taking oath is a sin. It says that it's just not necessary. And it focuses you on yourself and going, are you making oaths to make yourself feel better about your own righteousness, a man-made effort? Or are you trusting in the righteousness of God to be your righteousness, and that's why you tell the truth anyway? So if you're in court this week, by all means, put your hand on the Bible and you can say your oath. It's not a problem. Because if that's what men need to trust you, fine. Sign your contracts, do what you need to do. But ultimately... They're not necessary in the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. Making and keeping a showy vow isn't as righteous as simply being a man or woman of your word. So watch yourself this week. Are you a man and woman of your word? Do you want to be just okay in the way that you speak? Or do you want to be a man and a woman that is known for keeping your word? So that's the first one. The second question is, what rights do we have when we are wronged? What happens when someone wrongs us? How does... How do the different um, kingdoms compare to each other? Let's look here in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The ubiquity of this particular standard and law needs uh, almost no explanation. I mean, my four-year-old is here with me this morning and he understands this, that if his older brother punches him, he has the opportunity to punch him back. In fact, no, he even has the obligation to punch him back. And, And if dad shows up and says, hey, what's going on in here he punched me did you punch him back yeah but he punched me first he deserves it eye for an eye dad it's in the bible tooth for a tooth right yes you're right but i'm pretty sure that's not the spirit of what the bible meant when he said that things were no different in the days of the old testament look at what moses says moses says the punishment should fit the crime Yes, that is justice, and in cases of wrongdoing in the Old Testament where one person wrongs another person, either on purpose or by mistake, retribution could be enacted under the law, but it had to be exact, and it had to be equal. The laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy enabled justice, but they limited justice. Revenge. They were there and in place to keep you from ratcheting up your retaliation when someone wronged you. The laws kept it level and it kept it civil, okay? And these laws themselves were meant for the judicial system, something of of the courts of Israel in those days. And that's how they would decide justice for the people. But by the time of the first century, the scribes and the Pharisees had gotten wrapped up in making sure that the punishment fit the crime They started to apply the principles of the legal system in in criminal matters into matters that are personal and ticky-tacky matters that would happen every day and started to say, hey, you know, you're entitled to retribution. And that's what the Pharisees say. You're entitled to retribution. They were justifying all manner of personal vengeance as so-called righteous retribution. So you can imagine, you know, somebody comes up, you know, if Pastor Wayne's here, he comes up here and he slaps me on the face. And I'm like, ah, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, smack. Is that, is that righteous? Is that, is that what Jesus would do? How many people did Jesus hit? None? But that's what the Pharisee and a scribe would do and they would say that they were righteous in so doing. Ew, that's not, ki- that's not the kingdom that, that God has come to make available to us in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to illustrate the superiority of the kingdom righteousness, so he says, don't resist someone who is evil. He says, be generous as I am generous, my words. Because the kingdom of God is not characterized by citizens who take justice into their own hands, especially in personal matters. You see, when you're basing your life on a righteousness that's man-made, when you're trying to protect justice for yourself, and you're trying to keep things even for you, and you don't trust anybody else to do it for you, then yeah, you better take matters into your own hands. But when you remember that the God of the universe is the one who is in charge of justice, and that it belongs to him, revenge belongs to him, justice belongs to him, and that he will take care of it, you can instead decide to be generous with those who are unjust. Paul holds up the same kingdom righteousness to the church in Rome in the book of Romans. These people were plagued by unjust laws and ridiculous customs that took advantage of lower class citizens and people. Like a Roman soldier could walk up to you and say, hey you, carry this for me and you had to carry it for him for a mile and look at what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12 never never pay back evil for evil to anyone brothers and sisters in the room, little kids this applies to all of us Respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Kingdom righteousness, the kingdom that Jesus is making available to us, the life that we can live, isn't concerned with keeping rights. Especially man-made ones. It's only concerned with treating others the way God has treated us. There is nothing righteous about claiming our rights. St. Augustine said it this way, Many have learned how to turn the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. (sighs) Great, Matt. So what you're telling me is that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to turn into some sort of pacifist doormat. For people to walk all over, right? That's what your sermon's about. You're trying to heap this on me now and make me feel all guilty? No, no. I'm trying to show you the difference that Jesus is showing us in this sermon by saying man made righteousness isn't righteous at all. This isn't pacifism, it's grace, it's generosity, it's kindness, it's righteousness. And as I was preparing for this, there's no greater illustration in my mind of this than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Listen to what one of his friends said about him at his funeral. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew, house bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, Stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet, this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love." Can you imagine what a scribe or a Pharisee could have justified had they been in the shoes of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.? King's legacy of what was, he was able to do to lay the foundation for civil rights in our country is a great example of how the kingdom righteousness far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's one that looks like the kingdom of God. Dr. King himself even said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. The bottom line is, if you want to retaliate, if someone has wronged you and you want to get them back, okay, fine, get them back. But overcome evil with good. Not with evil. There are two types of people in this world. Givers and takers. And when someone comes to take from you, which one will you be? Jesus makes available a kingdom of givers. And he models it for us in the way that he gave his life for those he came to save. Alfred Plummer has said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Our last one has to do with whom shall we love? In verses 43 through 48, we're going to ask the question, whom should we love? And it will illustrate, I think, um, the best comparison and contrast of this ethic. You have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father. Who's in heaven? He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father, is perfect this final illustration i think encapsulates all six of these illustrations into one ultimate ethic that illustrates the goodness of kingdom righteousness moses says in the old testament love your neighbor as yourself this is a direct quote he says in leviticus nineteen eighteen, he writes you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. (laughs) That is nothing like what is mentioned here in verse 43. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy? He's really like the mechanic in the commercial. He's making stuff up. The Pharisees and the scribes completely made something up based on their interpretation of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. How did they get there? Because they took Leviticus 19 and they said, okay, this command is given to us as a nation, and the command says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, Israelites, okay, so this command is only given to us and it's only about us. So therefore, if I want to love my neighbor, my neighbor is the people who are like me, people of my same race and my same religion, which gives me now the freedom To not have to love people that are not like me that are not of my same race and not of my same religion it's my responsibility to love those who are like me not those who not just are different than me but also those who may even hate me and again jesus wants to illustrate the difference so in verse 44 he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you And I think this really, his section here, really shows the absurdity of the logic of the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because think about it. Number one, if you only love those who love you, eventually you will love and be loved by no one. Right? Because everyone disappoints you. Everyone will eventually hurt you. Everyone will will become your enemy in some form or fashion, especially those that are closest to you, your neighbors, your family, your brothers and sisters, your husbands and wives. I mean, These are the people that we get in the most conflict with. So if they wrong us and I only love those who love me, then that's not gonna go well for either of us. Secondly, if you only love those who love you, you're really no different than those who aren't Christians. The, f- the one thing that makes Christian love different than any other kind of love in the world is that it loves enemies. Thirdly, we know from Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan, along with lots of old other to Old Testament passages, that neighbor is meant to include people who aren't like you, people of different races, different religions. What makes a person my neighbor isn't that they have the same faith as me or the same face as me. It's that we have the same maker. And if the maker loves his creation, then I should love what he loves. That's what makes someone my neighbor. But ultimately, what if God lived by the ethic of the scribes and the Pharisees? What if God loved his neighbor and hated his enemy? Then Romans 5.10 would really change the way that we think about life because it says, For if we were enemies to God, we were reconciled to God through the death of of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If God only loved those who loved him and hated his enemies, none of us would be here this morning. Is that the righteousness? Is that the best the scribes and the Pharisees have? Love your enemies? Pray for those who er, persecute and hate your enemies? Ugh. Just okay is not okay at all. Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate, and this is the life that he's made available for us to live. One where people are loved not based on what they do, but based on who they are and who are they. They are the creation of God, no matter what they look like, no matter what they say, no matter what they believe. They are the object of his affection, and he desires them. And if he loves them, then so should we. How many enemies does someone who is merciful have? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. How many enemies do they have? When we comprehend the great love with which God has loved us, then we are no longer obsessed with protecting ourselves from our enemies we can be generous to them instead. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of you all in here are t- sick and tired of the Patriots being in the Super Bowl. You wanna see a different combination. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. I'd love to see it mixed up a little bit. But it was interesting to me uh, this week at the media day, a young boy interviewed Tom Brady and asked him a question that I thought went particularly well with this text this morning. Because Tom Brady's 40 years old, he's, he's old. And a lot of people have been dogging on him, hating on him, because he can't, he's just not the same quarterback anymore. There's no way he can keep winning. Well, a little young boy asked him a question about that, and let's see how he responds. How are you able to focus despite the negative fan base? A.K.A. the haters. I don't know. What do we do about the haters? We love them. We love them. We love them back, because we don't hate back. We appreciate it, and we love them, and we wish them the best in their life. Whoa. Some Patriots fans in the room. All right. (laughs) Now I wish, the only thing I wish is that this little boy would have asked him one follow-up question, why? how? How do we love our enemies? Why do we love the haters? 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Romans 5.6-9 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though if perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The bottom line here is we are recognized as God's children by the way we love whom he loves. And God loves everybody. You know, we've all heard the expression like father, like son. I think that's just the spirit here of verse 45 and verse 48 where Jesus says, you do this so that you may be sons of your father. And he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This final statement, especially the one about perfection, isn't a command from Jesus to work harder until you get it right. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that kingdom citizens look like their king. The people who trust Jesus, who build their lives on the rock of his teaching and have place their faith in him, they live and breathe in his uh, kingdom. They look like their father who is in heaven. They don't love halfway. They don't love people based on how well they perform. They love people based on who they are as people. Their love is just as complete For others, as his is for them, they're willing to love sacrificially, even their enemies, because that's what their king did. You'll notice that even in the way I have put it in your notes, Jesus never tells us to make ourselves something. All he ever tells us to do is to be like him in what he has already done for us. That is the kingdom that Jesus has come to make available to all of us. One where we can keep, we can say something and we don't have to embellish it. One where we can be mistreated and still be kind. One where we can love everyone regardless of how they treat us. This is the kind of kingdom that God has come to inaugurate in and through one who did it himself. And when and if you place your faith in Jesus, You become like him, not because you've worked so hard, but because he has done so much for you. He will transform you himself. We all have our own fallacy-ridden ideas of what righteousness is in our lives, especially when we're tired of just being okay, when we're tired of just getting by. We know deep down that our own efforts are just man-made, and that's not okay. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount speaks into those fallacies about righteousness into our lives just as loudly and just as clearly as he spoke into the fallacy of the Pharisees that righteousness is not man made, it's God given. And the only way we can have access, the only way we can have life in that kingdom is in and through the life, the death, and the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ our Lord his kingdom is available to you I commend it to you will you trust in him and build your life on the rock that is Christ Jesus amen amen let's pray our heavenly father we thank you that righteousness is not up to us that you have made it possible for us to have life that's more than fine more than just okay in and through Jesus, that you've not left it up to us because we know that we can't do it ourselves. And so, Father, we trust you. We place our faith in you for everything that we do, not because we're trying to become something that we're not, but because you have made us in your image to be like you. And so we yield our will and our spirit and our lives to you and to your glory.